Almighty God, we come before you now and we thank you for your word. We ask, Almighty Father, that you would teach us as we delve into yet another petition from the Lord's Prayer. Teach us to pray, O Lord. Teach us how to live our faith. In Christ's precious name, Amen. There's an older man who was at his family's Labor Day barbecue. Maybe you're going to have a Labor Day barbecue, I don't know. He was happy to be there. He was a patriarch of the family, but things between he and one of his daughters had been somewhat tense for the rest of the summer. They, they weren't estranged from one another, but things hadn't quite been right. He had always been fairly close with this particular daughter. And he's just sitting on a picnic table, just relaxing, enjoying nature, when he hears his youngest daughter, his youngest daughter, creeping up behind him. He didn't know it was her until he turned around. He thought to himself, well, here we go again. What's, what's going to happen now? They say hello, as people are wont to do on social occasions. And before he can even get a word out, she says, you know, Pop, I don't even know what we're fighting about. I can't even recollect what it is we're squabbling about. Now, the father knew exactly what they were squabbling about. But being the gracious and wise man that he was, he didn't say anything. He just nodded his head and looked at his daughter with warmth and love. And just as he was about to speak, she again interrupted him and said, I don't know what we're fighting about, but I do know that it's my fault. I started it. I can see that in my mind. I know that I started it. And I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? Hmm. What would you do if you were that old man? And you've got her right where you want her. Checkmate. No, he didn't do that. Hopefully we wouldn't either. He just got up and hugged her. And told her, it's over. Consider it done. Let's go get some dessert. It's a wonderful picture, really, of the way God deals with us. Once we confess our sins, he forgives us. And he bids us to his family, and families eat together. That's what the Lord's table represents, the feasts of God, the the means of our salvation. And one of the first things that's going to occur in heaven is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. That's what God does. He doesn't rub his hands and laugh and say, I've got you, checkmate. He forgives us, hugs us, and tells us to move on. And as we come to this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, it's a pretty simple one. They're all actually fairly simple to understand. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It would be great if all of our petty squabbles ended as peacefully as that illustrations, but sadly we know they don't. The petty squabbles that we have with strangers and with those most dear to us, they very often don't end nearly as peacefully as this because we live in a world, fallen world, a world full of tumult, trouble, and turmoil. Job understood that. His life was a mess. The Corinthians understood that. Their church was a mess. 
Obviously, the Pharisees in the Gospel reading didn't quite get that, but Jesus knew very well that the world was filled with trouble. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the book of Isaiah tells us. And the result of all of these squabbles, or better yet, first and foremost, the reason why these squabbles happen is because we're sinners. We live in a fallen world, remember. It's not just a, an imperfect world. It's fallen. It's under the curse of God because of Adam's sin. And we squabble. We live in a world of petty fights and silly disagreements and foolish arguments. And don't we all act like spoiled, rotten children very often? We don't get our way, so we take our marbles and go home start a fight over something ridiculously silly that won't mean anything a week from then and certainly won't mean anything when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul pointed out in the epistle reading. Think of all those silly arguments we have, all those ridiculous displays of childish emotion, all the hurtful words that we say to each other, to God and to those we love. The sad reality is this. We live in a world filled with this kind of thing. And this is a fairly mild argument. It's impossible, listen to me carefully, it's impossible in this world not to offend somebody sometime. And it's fairly impossible to not be offended at one point or another. It really is. None of us escape without a scar. We all wound each other. And we sin against each other. And we owe each other moral debts. And that's what this fifth petition is all about. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It plainly teaches us that, very simply, we must ask God to forgive us. We must ask God. God to forgive us. And when you think about it, who in their right mind wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that? If you knew that God wanted to forgive you, if you knew that God was able to forgive you, why wouldn't you ask him to forgive you? Well, there's quite a few reasons that people don't do that. One of them is pride. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. Even to an eternal, almighty God, we don't like to admit we're wrong. We certainly don't like to admit that we're wrong to our other fellow human beings. Nobody likes to do that. Some of us are a little bit better at it than others, but there are some of us who just simply can never say, I'm sorry, can never say, you know what, you have a good point. I think I'm mistaken on that one. Maybe you know people like that. Maybe you're one of those persons. I don't know. But why do we need to ask God for forgiveness? I mean, why do we need to? Now, we're Christians. We are church-going people. We understand that we're sinners. But we owe him a moral debt. We forget that our sins have accumulated a debt to God. Now, very quickly, that word debt, it's a better translation than the word trespass. Some churches use Forgive us our trespasses. I grew up Roman Catholic, and they use trespasses. Yeah, Lutherans do, Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox. It's, it's an okay translation, but debt is, is, is more literal. 
And we understand that better from the parallel passage in Luke, in Luke 11. The Holy Spirit inspires Luke to use a completely different word. The Lord's Prayer in Luke says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So a trespass is certainly a sin, but it's kind of weak. When you think of the, um, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, trespassing, generally speaking, isn't viewed as a, a, a horrible crime against man and society. It's a, it's, a, it's a crime that usually they're just going to say, just go home, no need to go to court on this one. Maybe a little fine, but not a big fine. But debt is what we owe God because of the guilt of our sin. This is why we need to ask God for our forgiveness. We don't like to think of this, but think of it as a spiritual transaction, like a transaction at a bank. You have a debt. You have to pay it. What do you do? You have to take money out of the account and give it into the account of usually the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or someone who has offended you, someone who you have offended, the victim in the crime. It's a property type of crime. Or you could think of it as um, you're in law court. You break a law and now you owe a debt to society. We say that, right? It's common lingo. He paid his debt to society. He served 20 years in the state prison. He paid his debt to society was convicted of a capital crime, was executed. He paid his debt to society. Well, if, if that works for the state, how much more then does it work for God? If you sin against God, you owe a debt to God. The difference is the debt is higher. And you have less resources to pay that debt. And if you get fined $5,000 for some state crime... You may not have it right at your disposal, but the state will arrange a payment plan for you. They will arrange a payment plan for you. The debt that we have accumulated over our lives to God, we simply don't have the resources in our spiritual bank account to pay that off. No matter how long of a payment plan God would put you on, you would never expunge that debt. And neither would I. That's why it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does the book of Romans tell us? Romans chapter 3. This is who we are. Let me just read this very quickly. A little description of humanity here. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the description of humanity. Not exactly compliments a string of Old Testament quotations from the Psalms that's who we are but here we arrive at a greater problem a worse problem than that many of us dispute that we owe God anything at all 
a lot of us don't think we owe God anything whatsoever. A woman told her pastor, I don't think God is up there keeping score of everything I do. The pastor said, okay, well, it's not me. Why do you pray to him? Well, so he can meet my needs. The pastor says, oh, I see, I see. You pray that God will meet your needs. But if he's not keeping score, if he's not watching everything you do, how could he possibly help you? No. The woman had to remain silent at that point. You see, like many of us, she wanted to have her cake and eat it too. She didn't want God to keep a scorecard of her sins, but she was more than willing to go to him as a cosmic ATM machine. A lot of us don't think we owe God anything. The fact is that this moral debt, whether we like it or not, has its roots in Adam's first sin. Adam was the federal head of all humanity. He sinned. He had one commandment, one negative commandment to obey in paradise. And he didn't do it. We bear that guilt. You may not like that. You may think that's somehow unjust. But that's reality, folks. We own that. He is the father of our flesh. He is the fountainhead, as it were, of all human race. We bear the stain and guilt of his original sin. But more than that, more than that, we owe God a debt because of our actual sins, our personal sins. In case you haven't looked in the mirror lately, we're doing pretty well on that score. You can just leave Adam out of it for a minute and just look at your own life. Leave Adam out of it for a minute and look at anyone's life and examine it in the light of God's law. You realize the two just don't match up. We all stumble in many ways, James says. He says, if anyone is able not to sin, to stumble in word with their mouth, and that is a perfect person, able to bridle entire bodies. That famous chapter in James 3, and he likens the tongue to a fire that's been set on fire by hell. The tongue is an unruly, unruly thing. And a vast not a vast, but a fairly decent amount of our sins originate right here in the front of our face. With what we say and what we fail to say. The hurtful things we say and the loving things we refrain from saying. We owe God. But the folks who don't think that they owe anything to God, where do they come up with that notion? They hate Sin. They hate the idea of sin. They hate the idea of guilt. In case you haven't noticed, guilt is not a popular word in our culture. There's excuses for a person's behavior. No matter what the crime is, it's because this happens to them, or they, they didn't have this education, or they grew up in a disadvantaged neighborhood. And all those things are real. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. All those things are very real. And there are always explanations for someone's horrific behavior, but those explanations are not to be used as excuses. They cannot absolve you of guilt. Just because you grew up in a bad neighborhood does not give you the right to become a bank robber. There are plenty of people who grew up in horrible neighborhoods 
who didn't become bank robbers. And you know what? There's quite a few people who grew up with quite a bit of advantage in our society, and they've grown up to be louses. Explanations are never excuses. But the primary reason people have so light a view of sin and guilt is because they have a very misguided view of God. This is really the root of the issue. If we can get a good biblical understanding of who God is, then sin and guilt come quickly in bold relief. So I'd like to quickly examine just three of God's characteristics, his attributes, that will help us to understand particularly our sin and our guilt. First, God is holy. You understand that? He's holy. We acknowledge that. But what is holiness? Holiness is simply to be set apart, to be different than other things around it. Think of the way we use it. Um, he's a cut above the rest. The Hebrew word that holiness comes from means to cut. He's a cut above the rest. Or we think of uh, cuts of meat. Right? Cold cuts aren't, generally speaking, the highest quality. I don't think you make... I don't think when you buy roast beef at the deli that it's a New York strip steak cut up. I'm pretty sure it's not that. Because it would be a lot more expensive. A New York strip, is the, strip cut is the Rolls Royce of steak cuts. It's not exactly low in cholesterol, but it is extremely tasty. God is cut from a completely different cloth. He's holy. He is separate. He's morally perfect. And listen, we have to understand this. God is perfect because he cannot sin. And he cannot sin because he decides what is a sin. There is no category of goodness or morality or sinlessness above God that he has to match up to. He decides if something is right or wrong. And something is a sin just because he says it is. Not because it doesn't come up to some human category of justice or mercy. It's because God says that it is. And God is also sovereign. He answers to no one. He answers to no one. And how many people do you know that act like God really does owe them an explanation? Job is a little bit confused. And I think we need to cut him a little bit of slack if the things that happened to Job happened to us in such uh, quick fashion, we would probably be a little dismayed as well. People think God owes them an explanation. But God can do whatever he wants. Romans 9 makes that very clear, that he is sovereign above all. The book of Jeremiah tells us that God is a potter and we are the clay. He can do whatever he wants. And for those of us seated, seated here today, he's been very kind to us, generally speaking, with the way he has fashioned the clay of our lives. Yes, we have difficulties in our life. Yes, we go through hard times. But you can always look around and find somebody whose pottery is decidedly more broken decidedly more deformed, decidedly less desirable than the pottery of our lives. And God is not only sovereign, but he is a lawgiver. And because he's sovereign, he can give us his law. And the law of God isn't very popular today. That lady, 
She wanted God to give her things, to give her stuff. We want God to hear our complaints, but we don't want Him to tell us what to do. We don't want Him to tell us how to worship. We don't want Him to tell us how to work. We certainly don't want Him to tell us what to do with our money. Oh, I forgot, it's not our money. It's His money, and He loans it to us and wants us to steward it for the benefit of His kingdom. He gives us his law. The Ten Commandments proves this. Years ago, I read of a high-ranking member of another denomination who didn't really have a very high opinion of the Old Covenant, and he said this, the God of the Old Testament, frankly, is a dirty bully. Well, it's the same God. He's just changed the administration and the way he does things, but it's the same God. He hates sin just as much And that high-ranking bishop, he had an incorrect view of God. But if we can get a hold of the fact that God is holy and that he is truly sovereign and that he has given us his law, then we won't have nearly as much a problem with the idea that he holds us guilty, that we owe him a debt. You have to get a hold of those three things. Because you see, if God is um, the Trinity light, if he's light, if he's like... Music that you listen to in an elevator, you know, light, light-hearted music, if that's what he's like, then sin's not that big of a deal. But if he's a thundering symphony, you know, it just, Wagner just comes right at you, well, then you better take a little bit more care as to how you comport yourself in front of him. You need to examine the way we think about God. Because if we think wrongly about God, we will think wrongly about ourselves. And if we think wrongly about ourselves, our behavior will follow and we will cause more and more problems for ourselves and for those around us. But how do we know that God hates sin? I mean, he's a good God. Why would he hate sin? Well, I think the cross proves that God hates sin. If God doesn't hate sin, then why on earth did Jesus die that way? Couldn't he have come up with a more soft way of forgiving us? Well, he didn't. He didn't. I don't have an answer for that one. He chose something that, frankly, in our human reasoning, doesn't make a lot of sense. You send your only begotten son to be born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, born under lousy circumstances, frankly. He keeps those 600 laws perfectly, then he's crucified, executed for something that he didn't do. And that sacrifice is then given to his people's account. That's not really the way we, generally speaking, do things. The cross proves that God hates sin because if God hates sin, then sin exists. And if sin exists, that means that a law has been broken. And you know who's broken the law? You've broken the law. I've broken the law. Your children have broken the law. Your parents have broken the law. The president has broken the law. Everybody on planet Earth has broken the law except Jesus Christ. There are no perfect human beings. There is only the perfect God-man. He is perfect in his righteousness. He is the one who obeyed Every single moment of his life. Now think about how often we give in to temptation. 
we give in pretty quickly. We all have our little sin problems. We call it bad habits. We give in pretty quick. We do. Think of the pressure that Jesus was under from, from the day one, really. And then as he became a public minister, how tempting must it have been to really just lash into those Pharisees? They accused him of being demon-possessed. Do you like to justify yourself when people accuse you of something? Usually we like to justify ourselves even if we know we've done something wrong. But if we've been accused of something we know we haven't even come close to doing, we are very quick to jump down someone's throat. And they are here saying, he's demon. He's in league with Beelzebub. Beelzebub means a lord of the flies. Flies are nasty critters. They'll eat anything. And Beelzebub is the lord of the flies, and they're saying that's who he's in league with. How tempting do you think it was for Jesus to just say, are you out of your mind? He had to refrain from vindicating himself because the time wasn't there yet. The time wasn't there for him to be vindicated. We all know the effects of sin. We all know the effects of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. See, what's strange about the way God works this moral economy is that as we're simultaneously accruing more and more debt to him, we are simultaneously earning more and more wages, but the wages are not the type of capital that we want. It's kind of strange. In the real world, in the physical world, if you owe a debt, you go to work. You go to work and you earn wages so that you can then pay off the debt, but it doesn't work that way in God's economy. You accumulate the debt and the more you work, the more you sin. And the more negative wages you get. It's kind of a strange thing the way God has set up that moral economy. I think he's done it on purpose so that we would stop and say, Hmm, that's a a neat accounting trick you came up with there. It's the books are cooked. There's no way that you can uh, stop earning those wages. And every the more wages you earn, the more debt you accumulate. It's divine cooking of the books. But we're responsible for those books. And next week we'll get into the glory of God being a forgiving God. But I need to challenge you with something. I need to ask you. Have you asked God to forgive you? That's the basic thing that this petition is telling us to do. Have you trusted Christ and Christ alone to get you from this life to the next safely? Because you see, brothers and sisters, if you rely it all upon yourself. You will have nothing at that judgment seat but your own wages. You see, we earn those wages. Salvation is a free gift. If you haven't grabbed hold of the gift of Christ, I implore you to grab hold of him now. And if you already have, then praise hallelujah in your hearts. 
we're a fairly reserved congregation. We're not going to jump up and, and, and jump around. Maybe we should a little bit. But certainly when you go home and nobody's looking, you can scream at the top of your lungs, thank God that I'm saved. And don't ever stop thanking him for the forgiveness that he's giving to you because of what Christ accomplished on that cross. Ask God to forgive you and he will forgive you. He will. Let's pray. Almighty God, we marvel at your grace and we fully acknowledge that we are in need of that grace. And we thank you that you have forgiven your children of the debt that they owe you. In Christ's precious name, Amen.